The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts forever know His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Oh, the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ, the rock, is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, Pastor is an acrostic which stands for Preaching All Salvation Through One Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In parts 1 through 6 of this episode, we began to take time out to debunk and correct an internet article entitled, Why Jesus Wouldn't Cut It as a Pastor in Today's Evangelical Megachurches. We dismiss this title as a classic example of faulty logic and an incorrect worldview. We also began to debunk and dismiss the various logical fallacies in the article itself. In order to understand this episode in the context of the remaining portions of this podcast, it will be necessary, if you have not already, to listen to and be familiar with the preceding episodes and their content in order to move forward with contextual discernment. In this episode, we conclude the debunking of this article with the author's final statement. Quote, Evangelicals struggle to conform Jesus to a book, not the other way around. 
and the conservative bishops have aligned themselves with the American neoconservative wing of their church against not just Pope Francis, but against the emancipating logic of Jesus' empathy time bomb. If Jesus isn't the, quote, lens, unquote, evangelicals and Roman Catholics read the Bible and their traditions through, then whatever they say to the contrary, they do not really believe Jesus is the Son of God, unquote. I have news for the author. For 2,000 years, various people have struggled to conform Jesus, the Bible, truth, reality, meaning, morality, beauty, significance, and just about everything else to fit certain biases and assumptions of theirs for any number of reasons. In fact, during man's history, man has struggled to do the same with everything that there is. As stated in episode one, depending on your worldview, we either have several million to several billions of years of evolution versus about 6,000 years of creative history. Either way, after all this time, secular man still has no absolutes regarding all truth, reality, meaning, morality, beauty, and significance. Instead, we have relative subjective opinion, consensus from person to person, day to day, and place to place. If there is no ultimate source of authority, then history demonstrates we can do nothing but struggle endlessly, and we will never have a uniform, absolute conformity which we can all decisively point to as truth and reality. In order for there to be conformity, there must be an ultimate source to which we look at in order to then endeavor to take what we experience and then attempt to test and see if in fact it conforms to that authority. So in the case of Jesus, we cannot conform Jesus to subjective, relative opinion and consensus. If we do... Jesus will never agree to a non-fixed, subjective set of mixed values. If Jesus is God, and he is, then Jesus as God can only be compared to himself. If the Bible is God's word, and it is, then Jesus, who is God, can only be compared to those attributes of himself that he chooses to reveal in his word, in context, from cover to cover. Now, the author demands that everyone should use Jesus as the quote-unquote lens by which they read the Bible. Yet the author himself uses the Bible to interpret who he believes Jesus to be. As soon as the author constructs Jesus in a way which is agreeable to his liking, the author then uses the Jesus of his liking to destroy and dismiss those portions of the Bible with which his concocted Jesus allegedly disagrees with. Here, the author is again being disingenuous because he himself is struggling to conform Jesus to those portions of the same book i.e. the Bible, 
in an attempt to create a Jesus to his liking, every bit, if not more, than those whom he accuses of doing the same. So the truth is that both the author and his nemesis, the evangelical or the conservative Roman Catholic Church, are using the same book, i.e. the Bible. The odd thing is that the literal atheists deny that God exists. Thus, by extension, the atheist denies that Jesus is God despite the Bible and Jesus' plain declarations to this fact. This in turn forces the atheist to eliminate or heavily redefine the Bible to eliminate such issues. But here we have an atheist who relies heavily on the Bible to prove his particular case in chief while being upset with evangelicals and conservative Roman Catholics for allegedly doing the same thing. By analogy, the author's approach is like someone who militantly objects to eating meat on a moral basis and who meticulously advocates a vegan lifestyle. In order for our author to prove his case, the author then proceeds to eat meat in order to demonstrate its deleterious effects. While the author is chewing on a mouthful of rare meat, the author proceeds to preach to the world of how immoral those are who eat meat. The only difference is in our analogy here is that instead of a mouthful of meat, our author has a mouthful of Bible which he wants the rest of us to disdain and dismiss while he himself savors it for his own purposes and agenda. In the next sentence, the author claims that conservative bishops and the neoconservative wing of their church has aligned against Jesus. Simultaneously, the author who claims to be an atheist and who claims to speak for atheists claims alignment with Jesus and his quote-unquote love time bomb. Well, perhaps redundantly, I asked the author... Are you and atheists aligned with a mere human being who lived and died 2,000 years ago named Jesus? If so, why is a mere human who has been dead for 2,000 years any more or any less special than hundreds of thousands of dead people around the world? Even worse, here is a 2,000-year-old dead guy described and characterized by the Bible, which I thought, according to atheists, was a book filled with myths, legends, contradictions, made-up stories, and even lies by supposedly ignorant shepherds. Why in the world would any enlightened, sophisticated, educated atheist take seriously anything that a book like this has to say about anything. On the other hand, if Jesus is God and the Bible is God's word, then none of us, including the author, have any authority to disagree with God's word, much less God who holds ultimate authority over all things. 
But this is just exactly the disingenuous game that the author and this article are craftily attempting to force Christians to play. We already know, based upon history, that atheists do not believe in any god, much less the god of the Bible. We already know that atheists do not accept or place any credibility in the Bible as being God's word or the ultimate source of authority. At best, atheists might hold their nose while liking some of the poetic features in the Bible as inspiring sayings, but nothing more. We already know that atheists refuse to believe that Jesus raised the dead, walked on water, fed a multitude of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, much less rose from the dead after crucifixion. Typically, atheists immediately shut down Christians any time they mention any of these things, mocking them for being gullible, unsophisticated, and falling for superstitious fears of long, long ago. We are instead supposed to realize that man is the measure of all things, particularly the atheist and secular humanists who have arrived and hold the secrets of immutable truth, knowledge, and certitude about reality. The problem is that after hundreds of years, the atheist and secular humanist have still not converted everyone to their faithful believing of what they believe. The black and white worldview of traditional atheism that there is no God and the Bible is completely false has not worked to eliminate everyone's faith in God or the Bible. Hence, atheists and secular humanists have a new game to achieve their goals. If they can't eliminate God or his word, the Bible, then the next best thing is to craftily use the Bible to selectively conform God and his word to a humanistic God and a humanistic message that atheists and secular humanists can be comfortable with and throw their arms around. Thus, Jesus is no longer really God, whose goal is to redeem mankind from his nature of sin, back to being God's image bearer, and to eternal life via relationship through faith in Jesus. Instead, Jesus is simply a secular social justice architect and community agitator who gives moral humanistic advice on how to make this fallen world a better place to live in according to man's abilities, works, and efforts. According to them, Jesus is reminding us all that we each are God and create our own heaven by working together and ignoring the archaic antiquated, bigoted, racist, biased, intolerant, exclusionary revelations of what God, our Creator, wills for His people. With this approach, the author and other proponents of this argument create the same insidious lie that Satan proposed. In both cases, Satan and the atheist are pitting us against God and His Word, which they twist like Satan, 
they are essentially attempting to cause as many as possible to doubt and to ask, did God really say? Surely God does not mean that. Uh, what God probably meant was fill in the blank. So in the end, while the author, atheists, and others may be congratulating themselves with what they think is a cutting-edge argument of newfound enlightenment, they are in fact simply carrying on with the tradition of Satan in the garden who was a deceiver from the beginning. This is an important reality because God's word reveals that when God finished creation, all that he had created, including Adam and Eve, were considered very good. It is not until Genesis 3 that Satan began the process of accusing, planning doubt and rebellion against God's word as the ultimate reality and truth, which atheism and this author perpetuate to this day. Just like Satan proposed, atheism and secular humanism ask man to supplant his own efforts, knowledge, works, intelligence, and wisdom for a simple covering relationship of faith and trust in what God has said and what God provides. Sadly, many aspects of atheism and humanism have, along with rebellion in general, invaded into the fabric of the church. Some institutions calling themselves a church have so compromised themselves that by all biblical measure there is very little, if any, in some cases for those institutions to truly apply the biblical definition of a church. Others have marginalized themselves as churches with unsound doctrine and unsound theology to a lesser degree. Unfortunately, in these cases, the differences, disparities, and failings of these institutions become examples by which Satan and the world then use as weapons to accuse the entire church as being illegitimate. As the aberrant aspects of the institutions calling themselves a church multiply and grow, Satan, the world, and the aberrant church create the increasing pressure and persecution against God's truly outcalled ones, the church, to conform to the dictates of Satan and the world rather than God and his word. Eventually, worldly conventional wisdom and secular attitudes begin to redefine and pronounce the fallen, compromised church as the true church according to their interpretations, while progressively demonizing the true church, God's word, and anything else which undermines their agenda. This is precisely where we are with regard to this article, this author, and those whom he represents. They all thrive on launching loaded pejorative terms against their opponents like hate, bias, prejudice, bigotry, intolerance, narrow-mindedness, etc., while advocating for undefined terms like love, 
tolerance, inclusiveness, compassion, open-mindedness, etc. Once a person is confronted with such terms, they effectively dismiss and eliminate any discussion or evaluation of facts, evidence, logic, or substance, and instead replace it with emotion. So, for example, if I want to discuss the merits of a person or persons who routinely rob banks, the best way to deflect addressing facts and evidence is to ask me why it is that I quote-unquote hate people who quote need money unquote. Conversely, people can ask me where is your quote love unquote. Either way, what the issue of loaded and or pejorative terms and ad hominem attacks does is to redirect the discussion from facts and evidence regarding a subject to emotions and defense of personal integrity regarding attitudes and motivations which they assume absent any facts or evidence. Today, this technique has become the go-to argument across the board for almost every topic. It is effective because regardless of the issue, once anyone asserts the allegation that I or someone else is not exercising, quote, love, unquote, that we, quote, hate, unquote, for example, then few, if any, want instinctively to argue against the underlying topic because the moment they do so, they are by definition attaching themselves to the allegation that they are not quote-unquote loving or that they quote-unquote hate. Who, after all, does not want to be loving? Who wants to be labeled as hateful? If I want to be perceived as being loving, then my choice is either to agree with or approve of whatever notion, idea, or behavior is necessary in order to be loving, or alternatively to attempt to debate and therefore automatically be labeled as unloving or hateful. Again and again throughout this article, the author utilizes this technique using terms like empathy, love, inclusion, and dogma. Of course, the author would have us assume that all of these terms are defined in agreement with his position and that there are no other alternative definitions nor are there any other terms in existence which might conceivably be exercised in company with them. Because these terms are intrinsically and inherently unassailable by default, then those who stand accused are already assumed guilty by virtue of the terms applied. Because these terms are assumed to define who we are and what we really believe in our heart, our accompanying arguments are assumed to be likewise be motivated by these same terms. Ultimately, the real argument in question gets dismissed and rejected by virtue of our assumed immorality, while those on the other side inherit the appearance and mantle of the high ground without having to do anything 
other than use loaded or pejorative terms towards their opponent. But in reality, the use of this technique demonstrates by its degree the fact that the one using this technique has no substantive evidence or facts to support their position. It is far easier to appeal to raw emotion and gut instinct than it is to make an argument which carries the weight of having some ultimate authority, logic, or rational dialogue. Yet, atheists and secular humanists assume via circular reasoning that they are the guardians, the paragons of virtue, holding the keys to all truth and reality, while everyone who disagrees is misguided, unsophisticated, uneducated, biased, racist, bigoted, and hateful. In conclusion, it is time for God's people and God's church to remember and understand our situation is now versus what our situation will be. To begin with, God's people, the church, those whom God calls to repentance, and those who remain in rebellion and sin have, are, and will be polarized from one another. Those who are of the world and those who are called out and separated from the world have been, are, and will be at odds with one another. The life and worldviews of the two are irreconcilable and divergent. With regard to this reality, Jesus said the following, John chapter 15, verse 19, quote, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, unquote. Or again in John chapter 17, verses 14 through 16, where Jesus prays to the Father for those who are his followers. Quote, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, unquote. Or again, John chapter 18, verse 36, where Jesus says, quote, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here, unquote. Instead, we wait in this world as pilgrims until God destroys Satan, sin, and the wicked and creates a new heaven and a new earth as described in Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 and 21 verse 4. Quote, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea, unquote. Quote, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, 
for the former things have passed away, end quote. So, from Genesis 3 until Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, the situation we essentially see from a discerned biblical viewpoint is one of war between Satan, sin, the flesh, and the world, and God, salvation, the outcalled ones, the spirit, and God's kingdom. This world is the battleground where the war is fought. God's word gives us revelation regarding his victory of Satan, the world, the flesh, and sin. We know that in this war, Satan's goal is to use whatever device necessary to keep as many people as possible captive to the forces of sin and rebellion against God. Satan seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy as much and as many as he can, and to ultimately deceive as many as possible into eternal punishment with him. God's plan and will is to demonstrate all of his various perfect attributes to both a fallen world and to his elect. Satan and the world will realize God's perfect justice, righteousness, and holiness, while God's elect will realize God's perfect love, mercy, compassion, grace, and peace. God will be sovereign, and man will be responsible. During the interim, those whom God calls will be given God's grace, power, discernment, and other gifts according to God's indwelling Holy Spirit to live and to serve God according to God's revelation of what God has already done, is doing, and has already accomplished in the future. In other words, our mindset, thinking, works, deeds, and behavior are all made possible first and foremost by God working through us via relationship of faith in Him as God, as well as the reality of God empowering us by His Spirit, which is made alive in Christ. Because Christ lives in us, God's Spirit produces fruit by which we show that in fact Christ is alive in our hearts. Individually and corporately as believers, Christ works within us to be salt and light to a dying world around us. We give testimony and evidence via our lives that the world is in sin and rebellion. Our faithfulness serves as judgment against those in rebellion. We serve humbly as God's foot soldiers, his hands and feet, to accomplish his purpose on earth and to give glory to him for the results. We are ever mindful that we are pilgrims in the here and now of this world and that we are ever moving toward our true home heaven, which is not of this world. This world and life view is distinctly opposed to the world and life view of the unregenerate world, the atheist, and the secular humanist. 
In essence, they see themselves as nothing more than the result of random chance, an accident as a consequence of millions or billions of years of evolution. There is no designer who created them and gave them meaning and significance as an individual. For them, all significance, meaning, truth, reality, beauty, morals, ethics, and purpose must be individually assigned in their own eyes, by their own opinion, or according to consensus or percentage. Doing good, bad, indifferent, or nothing at all, are all ways which man satisfies himself. Typically, according to consensus, man doing what he sees is good and doing it marginally more or better than other men around him is the method by which man is able to convince himself that he is good. At the same time, man avoiding what he sees as bad and avoiding it marginally more than other men around him is the method by which man is able to convince himself that he has done the best he can. Since there is no God, no heaven, no hell, no salvation, no damnation, no sin, no rebellion, no ultimate truth or authority, man is his own God. If there is a God, it is only a God that, on the whole, man can agree with and approve of. Atheists, secular humanists, and the unregenerate world are living by the poison fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, wherein man attempts by his own efforts, merits, and intelligence to achieve paradise on earth. They will never get it, but... Their good intentions, devotion, sincerity, hopes, dreams, and work toward it is what matters. Whenever their dream is interrupted by reality, they default to the excuse that the reason is that we need more money, more time, more hard work, etc. The reason that there is a perceived failure or things are not progressing as planned is because there are those out there who are obstructing the process. Hence, getting rid of religion, especially Christianity, whose orthodox theology of an ultimate authority which conflicts with theirs must be eliminated. If atheists, secular humanists, and this author cannot eliminate it, then the next best thing is to utilize God, Jesus, and the Bible, and twist, corrupt, quote, out of context, or selectively use whatever is necessary to create a, quote, unquote, Christianity, which will walk hand in hand with atheism, secular humanism, the world, and ultimately with Satan, who doesn't care how or why, as long as we do not worship, honor, obey, exercise faith in, or have a living relationship with Jesus the Christ, who is Lord, Savior, King, and God, according to the Bible, which is His Word. Father, I pray that as the war rages around us every day, 
that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, give us discernment to see and to know that there is a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. At the same time, we know that by your grace and love, you are eager to draw whom you will to repentance, to a relationship with yourself by faith in your Son, Jesus' finished work. We know that those whom you have in your hand, none are lost. Those whom you know by name as being yours have victory, and there is nothing which can separate us from your love or from your inheritance of eternal life. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Trust in